welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks with Katie and Allie. Typically, just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. And today we're talking about a spy novel, which is very different for us. So fun. We have a very special guest here with us today, Anna Petoniak. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allie. Hi, Katie. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're so excited to have you. Anna is a Yale graduate, like the Gilmore Girls, and a former senior editor at Random House. But she's here with us today to talk about her latest book, a thrilling spy novel called The Helsinki Affair. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, of course. So as you mentioned, I used to work as an editor at Random House. That was how I got started right out of college. And I think I always had the dream of being a writer someday. It's something I've thought about since a little kid. Uh, But graduating from college, it wasn't exactly feasible for me to just go out and support myself by writing fiction immediately because it's not the most stable career path. So after working in publishing for a few years, I got the itch to start my own writing journey again. So I started working on the book that eventually became my first novel. It's called The Futures in the mornings before work. And uh, eventually, after a few years, I found an agent, I got the book published, and I sort of had both careers going side by side for a little while, editor and writer. I wrote my second novel while also working at Random House, and then eventually felt like I was maybe burning the candle at both ends. It was starting to be a little much, so I transitioned to being a full-time writer a few years ago. And these days I'm gravitating towards spy fiction. It took me a few books to sort of find the genre I wanted to settle into, but The Helsinki Affair is an international spy thriller, kind of in the vein of a John le Carre, except the women are in charge. That's how I sort of describe the book summarily. Perfect. Well, we can't wait to talk about it. Uh, but as usual, we like to start off with a cocktail. <laughs> Excellent. So, this is called the Helsinki Affair. It has aquavit, pineapple juice, sweetened lime juice, orange bitters, and you top the whole thing off with club soda. It's so cute. Wow. Oh, it looks beautiful too. <laughs> so pretty. A gorgeous looking drink. Oh, it tastes great. I love aquavit oh, drink. It's so good. I don't know that I've ever had aquavit, which is sort of unacceptable for yeah. someone who's written a book called The Helsinki Affair. <laughs> I need to remedy that. Yeah. It's very good. I always describe it as tasting like rye bread. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. I have to try that for sure. It's like you're drinking a loaf of bread for yeah. sure. <laughs> Just so you feel flattered. I think we put it in our Dolly Parton cocktail. We did. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. This is, this is the only time Dolly and I have ever existed in that in a similar category we're one degree away now (laughs) okay so before we dive into your book can you set the scene for our listeners what time period does this book take place and are there any other time periods that we visit during the book Sure. Yes, that's a that's a great question, a very pertinent question, because although the book primarily takes place in present day and it starts off on a hot summer August afternoon in Rome in the present day, I don't name the year specifically, but it's essentially 2023. 
Uh, there are many scenes in the book that take place during the Cold War. So we flash back repeatedly to the 1970s, but really the 1980s and the very early 1990s in mostly Helsinki. That's where a huge part of the action takes place, where a big part of the central conspiracy plays out. So it's a story that toggles back and forth between present day and the Cold War. And it was really fun weaving those two storylines together because there are a lot of parallels between our present moment and that past moment, especially with all of the Russia versus America tensions. Mm -hmm. And our main character is a young spy named Amanda Cole. Can you tell us a little bit about her character, what she's like, and how she got into the spy business? Amanda is an ambitious and driven young woman. She's a CIA officer. She's just about 40 years old when the book begins. And she got into the spy business because, well, number one, she's very well suited to it. She felt driven to it. But she first was exposed to the spy business because her father before her, Charlie Cole, also worked as a CIA CIA officer during the Cold War in Helsinki. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the book is about Amanda's relationship with her father, Charlie, and how as she embarks on this quest to untangle a Russian-backed conspiracy in the present day, it winds up having connections to her father's past during the Cold War in Helsinki. So Amanda was a lot of fun to write. She is... A flawed and complicated person, as we all are, but she's a woman who is really uncompromising in going after what she wants and what she believes in. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, she's not following the conventional path. She's not married. She doesn't have children. She's putting her career and her service to her country first. And I found it a lot of fun to write this woman who was a little bit unusual, who's sort of forging her own way. I think it's so interesting to have a main character that's aged 40 and now again going through this Russian conspiracy because she would have been a young child in school doing bomb drills, right? Like Mm -hmm. she was alive during the Cold War and then again is kind of experiencing this situation. So I just love the counterplay there. So without giving too much away, what is the inciting incident of this book and how exactly is her father involved? You kind of touched on her father a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So the book begins, as I mentioned, on this hot August afternoon in Rome. Amanda is stationed in Rome as the deputy station chief for the CIA station. So she's the number two person in charge there. And this Russian man walks up to the embassy and asks to speak to whoever's in charge and says he has information about an assassination that's going to take place the next day against a prominent American politician. Amanda agrees to meet with him and she winds up being convinced by him and believes him and thinks that he really is telling the truth. Her boss does not believe her and quashes her and prevents her from doing anything about it. But This isn't really a spoiler alert because it takes place in the first chapter. It turns out this Russian defector was telling the truth. The assassination does take place. And from there, Amanda is promoted to now be running the station and running the operation. And she's in a race against time to figure out who was behind this assassination, why they were targeting this politician, and what else is involved in this mystery. 
But as she pursues this mystery, she finds this dossier of papers that has her father's name listed in there. And she knows that something must be afoot. So she eventually talks to her father about it. He's not very forthcoming, but she has to decide whether or not she's going to pursue the truth about what her father might have to do with this this Russian conspiracy. And it puts her in this very tricky position between having to decide between loyalty to her country and loyalty to her family. Yeah. It's interesting too, because there's kind of like equal parts, like she's dealing with these huge, like big government secrets, and then also these very personal secrets about her family. And at the same time, dealing with some kind of seems like sexism, you know, did you think a lot about, I mean, which of these things do you think are kind of harder for her to come to terms with? Like the slights against her personally that she's personally involved with, or these big government conspiracies? (laughs) It's a really interesting question, and I think that both aspects are challenging in different ways, and both are probably quite intertwined. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that Amanda is a human being, like we all are, which means that she gets triggered by certain things, or she's especially scared of certain things, or certain things set her off. Like whatever it is that really freaks me out might not freak out the person next to me. And that's all sort of tied up in her own personal experience, her own upbringing, her own experience of being a woman in this very male dominated world. So it might be that the things that Amanda experiences in her personal life, the sort of sexist slights, the expectations of loyalty from her father, those kinds of things, set her up to find certain aspects of the the government work, the more official, quote unquote, CIA work to be particularly difficult. Uh, I think a really interesting counterexample to this is her colleague, Kath Frost, who's this very badass older woman who is also a CIA officer who has a, a very strong attitude. It isn't really freaked out by things the way Amanda can sometimes be. and that probably has a lot to do with their own personal experiences in the world. So I do think the two are kind of uniquely tied together. Yeah, it it was pretty interesting because I feel like Amanda almost is going through what a lot of really prominent political families go through, like say the Kennedys, where it's like you have your personal secrets and your government secrets and you (laughs) somehow have to keep them separate. Mm -hmm. But then Kath is there kind of like a mentor. What kind of things... Does she learn from somebody on the outside of her family? And does she learn about the barriers in this industry? Yeah, I think that Kath is an incredible mentor to Amanda because in a way there's a blank slate between the two of them. So in the same way that if your mother tells you to do something or your father tells you to do something, it can be uniquely annoying because they're your parents and it makes you feel like you're five years old again. Whereas for Amanda, when Kath gives her a piece of advice or imparts some wisdom, it's like, oh, cool. Well, you're probably looking out for me. Thanks so much. And I think that's why it's so important for us to all have sources of wisdom and mentorship and guidance that go beyond our immediate family. I think that there's also this interesting thing that happens because of the age gap between Kath and Amanda. So Kath is in her 70s, Amanda's about 40. So they're not 
peers. They're not the same age, but it means that maybe they don't feel super competitive with one another either. Kath is really able to be that mentor, that voice of wisdom for Amanda. And even in the modern day, the CIA, my sense of it, at least from the outside, is that it's still a pretty male-dominated world. So I think when you find another woman who you really connect with, who you trust, who you have a good rapport with, it's a very cool thing and something to really treasure and appreciate. And I think they both have that. Yeah. I also think the genre of spy novels is very male dominated uh, with writers and characters. So what did you want Kath and Amanda to kind of add to the story and how are their stories different than the traditional male spies? Mm -hmm. It is a very male dominated genre and that's, exactly why I eventually decided to try my hand at spy fiction. I mean, I have been reading in this genre for years and years. I've always loved international spy fiction. Um, I mentioned John le Carre as an inspiration, Graham Greene, Alan First. I love those books, but I couldn't help but notice, as you just pointed out, that these are all male authors. The characters at the center of the stories are mostly men. And I really wanted to read a version of those novels, but where the women were in charge. And I think that this is important, not just for representation, but representation is important too, but also because women move through the world in a different way. They experience the world in a different way. This is a gross generalization, but I have found that most women I know are much more curious about, let's say, the emotions of other people. They're much more likely to want to dive into the personal tidbits of other people's lives. They're just, they're curious about people in a way that is really, really powerful and really beautiful. And I think that that can be tremendously useful when you're working as a spy. It means you might just notice certain things, pick up on little subtleties that um, a male colleague might not, or he might, because a lot of men are emotionally attuned as well. But I wanted to add to the spy genre this kind of character, this kind of protagonist who was maybe a little bit more aware of their own internal emotional state at any given time and where we, the reader, was really, we were really able to access and perceive their emotional dimension. I think that often spy novels can read as very masculine, as not the most emotional or sensitive books in the world. But I think that we're all, we all have that in ourselves. And I think it's really beautiful to tie that together along with a page turning, high stakes, high adrenaline storyline. Yeah. And I, I love how you bring up how women move a little bit differently through the world, because we've covered a lot of historic espionage women on this show. And a lot of times they were chosen for that specific reason. We just recently um, covered a woman who was a spy during the Civil War. We covered Victoria Hall, who's our favorite, obviously, because she's from Maryland. Um, who was the girl who parachuted with the lipstick? Nancy. Oh. Nancy Wake. Nancy Wake. Just like these really amazing women who were in the spy game when women couldn't even have like jobs, you know? Mm -hmm. like, yep. They're yep. Underestimated, they're underestimated. Such a yes. Part yes. Of it. When you're a I, spy, for sure. I, I think that's a huge part of it because when you, let's say uh, you're a 
you're a Russian defector and you're waiting to meet with your new handler from the CIA and some young woman walks into the restaurant, you might think, oh, well, I'm, I'm smarter than her. I'm more clever than her. There's no way she's going to trick me or fool me. Mm -hmm. And so you, you let your guard down a little bit and you maybe get a little bit cocky and you just, you think you have the upper hand, but these women are incredibly smart, incredibly driven, and as you said, incredibly brave to be doing this work that's, uh, it is always inherently risky. And especially in the past, when they were doing so at a time when a lot of women were really not welcome in the workplace. Yeah. yeah. What kind of research did you do for this book and mm. historical time period? I'd love to know what you found out about the Cold War and what was the most interesting thing about it to you. Yes. So I did quite a bit of research, not just for this book, The Helsinki Affair, but also for the book that preceded this one, Our American Friend, which unlike The Helsinki Affair, it's not 100% a spy thriller. I often describe that book as 50% spy thriller, 50% historical fiction. But that was the first time I started dipping my toe into the waters of um, spy fiction and historical fiction and that sort of more research heavy genre. So I did a lot of reading. I read a ton of biographies and memoirs, either written by or written about various players in the Cold War, some CIA officers, some KGB officers, other sort of noteworthy political figures. I read a lot of narrative nonfiction accounts of the Cold War, and I started to eventually zero in on the late stage of the Cold War, the 1980s, because that was a really interesting time when tensions became very heightened between Russia and America, partially because of the rhetoric of people like Ronald Reagan, and you had the Star Wars program, and you had this real sense of increased animosity between the countries. But then eventually, it turned out that Russia introduced certain reforms, you know, glasnost and perestroika and other terms we might have learned in history class. Um, and eventually there was this thawing of relations. So it's this interesting time where so much is going on and the tensions gradually start to crack and open up into this detente between the two countries. So I read a lot about that period, and I very much treated the research process in this organic fashion, just following my curiosity and keeping track of little tidbits along the way. So I tend to hold the research pretty loosely. I don't want to box myself in too much with, okay, I'm going to write a character who's based on this specific real person or this specific real incidents, because at that point you're constraining sort of the the territory that you can roam around in as a novelist. But a couple aspects of the research that were sort of part of both my previous novel and The Helsinki Affair, two things. One was that I had the chance to actually go down to Langley and spend an afternoon at CIA headquarters, mm -hmm. meeting with a few people there, uh, someone from the public relations office, someone who works at the CIA as an in-house historian and someone who's an in-house psychologist who works with officers and agents in the field to provide them counseling and support, essentially. And so they answered a lot of my questions and gave me great little real-life tidbits. And 
I was only able to see this very small sliver of the CIA headquarters because they don't just let you roam around unchecked, Mm -hmm. understandably, but that was very cool. And um, also around that time, I had the chance to travel to Russia and to Helsinki briefly. This was shortly before the pandemic shut down. So I felt lucky to get that trip in before we were all stuck at home for a couple of years. But actually going to Russia and walking around and just sensing how different it was, there are certain parallels between Russia and America. These are two very big, very powerful countries with um, a lot of complexity and a lot of problems, but also very different from America, hugely different. And we're really seeing that play out these days. Um, That was incredibly useful just for allowing me to sort of close my eyes and imagine myself being there. Even though I obviously never visited Russia during the Cold War, it was it was kind of like a seed from which my imagination was allowed to um, evolve and spring forth. Yeah. And I think those little seeds of real life are what help fiction novels like this come to life. Like you can mm-hmm. tell when there's certain phrasing in a book where it's like, I've never heard that language used mm-hmm. before to describe this. That person must know what they're writing about. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. is really nice. It's very yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, something we, we, I always <laughs> love to ask fiction writers. Yes, maybe this isn't based on one particular famous person, but are there moments or characters or things that happen in your story that you've seen happen in real life, like a woman on the street corner or your sister or, you know, a professor in college where it's just like, that is something they always said and it got on my nerves. So I'm going to make this annoying character say that. Mm, It's a really good question. I'm trying to think of anything off the top of my head that is based on a real interaction, but I do think that one one thing I've observed before, and this is less like a specific granular instance and more something you maybe see a lot of when you work in any kind of corporate setting, is this phenomenon, which I sort of referred to earlier in the conversation of Amanda picking up on something and taking it seriously and her boss just glossing right over it and being like, no way, I'm older than you. I'm smarter than you. I know how the world works and this ain't it. Mm -hmm. And I worked in the publishing industry for a long time and publishing has gone through many changes and been disrupted by technology, you know, 10 times over. And I remember being in countless meetings where some of the youngest assistants or junior editors would say, you know, we really should pay attention to this whole social media thing, or what about this? Or what about that? And some of the bosses could be very dismissive of this and say, well, it's just, we don't have to take it seriously. Trust me, I've been in this business for 50 years and this just doesn't matter. And it was really fun for me to explore how that dynamic, that very bureaucratic kind of rigid calcification, which is maybe we're used to being true in corporate settings is also true in a place like the CIA. You know, it's it's kind of an office like any other place. And even though these people are spies and they have incredibly thrilling lives and a lot of a lot of adventure built into their day to day, they're also at the same time creatures of this bureaucracy and they have to deal with the same 
stuff that everybody does who works in an office. Yeah. Mm. I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited for people to go out and get this book because it comes out November 14th. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So as of right now, when this episode is released, people can still pre-order it. Yep. Request it at your library. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about where people can find this book, where they can pre-order it and where they can find you and the rest of your work? Absolutely. So pre-ordering is, as probably many of your listeners know, a great way to support authors, support books you're excited about. It's um, a wonderful way to sort of signal your enthusiasm and support. And I always encourage people to support their local indie bookstores if they have one. But I also think ordering from your library is fantastic. Um, Requesting copies from your library is another really helpful way to send a positive signal out there. If you happen to live in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., or Rhode Island, I'll be doing events in those places. I'm not quite sure when this episode is going to air, but probably before many of those events take place. So you can always check those out on my website, which is annapetoniak.com. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, my handle is just at annapetoniak. And I also have a Substack, which is called The Responsible Liar. And I send out those newsletters fairly infrequently, you know, once every few weeks, once a month. So it's never going to clog up your inbox, but I, I'm really interested in the balance between the creative parts of the writing life and then the more business-minded publishing-centric parts of the writing life, which you can probably chalk up to my time as an editor. So <laughs> I like to write about and explore the the balance and the interplay between those two sides of the business. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for being here with us. We're so excited for your book and for people to go get out and read about more girl spies. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I am all in favor of more girl spies in the world. So um, I can't wait to hear what people think. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.